Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we we would be fools not to ask your presence as we open your word. Come and minister to us. Show us again that life is not found in self. It's not found in the world. Show us again that life is found in your word. And in your word incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, forgive me. I am weak and frail. And all of us would echo that we are insufficient for the task in front of us to open your word and glean something. But you, O Holy Spirit, are at work among your people. Come and display your power, your grace, your mercy, your glory, that we may worship, that we may cling to you by faith in our Lord Jesus. And we ask it for his sake. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. You'll remember during my occasional time with you, we've been looking at these letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, written by Jesus to these seven churches and dictated to the Apostle John. There's encouragement in some, there's chastisement in some, there's a mixture of both in some. We are at letter number 4 out of 7. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. So far, God's holy and inspired word, may he add his blessing to it. A 
as we come to this fourth letter of these seven, it's important for us to get to know what I've been calling in my head First Presbyterian Church of Thyatira, because we all know that everyone in the Bible was Presbyterian, and uh, Thyatira is no exception. Thyatira was an interesting city. Um, it was in the midst of a valley in between two other valleys, and so people would travel through Thyatira, not always necessarily trying to get to Thyatira, but going through it. And over time, many merchants and travelers would settle there to uh, learn how to hone their skill crafts, and so they would join local guilds. And each of these trade guilds in Thyatira was associated with their own patron deity. They each had a little god that they would worship and give their life to. And if, if you wished to make a living in Thyatira, you would have to join one of these trade guilds. And if you joined a trade guild, your membership alone would declare to the watching world that you were a worshiper of that god's patron deity. But more than that, you would, in your work life, be expected to attend the festivals for that god and to eat the food sacrificed to that god. And more often than not, these festivals and feasts would devolve and include all kinds of immorality and revelry. You can begin to imagine that Thyatira was a hard place to be a Christian. A place where false gods were worshipped at company picnics, and it was expected for you to participate. It was a place where, where you were um, encouraged and, and expected to participate in sexual immorality just so that you could keep your job secure. It was a world of, of all gods and yet no God. It was a world full of, of tolerance, where, where toleration for everything was required and, and where all things were permissible and yet you could not claim an absolute truth. You couldn't stand upon the word of God and say that some things were forbidden by the true maker and creator. You know, this, this place, Thyatira, should begin to sound a little familiar to you. A world that puts tolerance on the throne, where everything is permissible and where absolute truths are forbidden. This type of difficult place is where uh, Thyatira Church began to suffer from the belief that, that a little compromise with the world not really as bad as it sounds. Do you face that temptation, Christian? To blend worldliness with your Christian faith enough to be accepted by the watching world, enough to feel comfortable with where you are, enough to justify some of your practices that perhaps should be put to death. This is a temptation in all of us to compromise with the world, to tolerate that woman Jezebel. Our aim this morning is simply to work through the text and to see three things. We want to see what Thyatira tolerated there in verse 20. We want to see what the Lord Jesus threatens them with as a result of this sin. And then lastly, we want to see what Jesus commands they do in order to repent. 
And I just want to point out, before we get into it, Thyatira wouldn't have been the worst church on our list. It's the most unknown city, the most unknown church on our list of these seven. And generally speaking, as we read through this letter, for the most part, they're a pretty good church. Their latter works exceed the first. They were in verse 19. They were loving and faithful and servant-hearted. They endured patiently with the things around them. And they were increasing in these things. And yet there was something festering inside them. You know, appearances aren't always what they seem to be. Things can sometimes look good on the outside and, and even be truly good. And yet still there is sin to excise from the church. May the Lord help us as we work through this, that we would see it not just in our churches, but in our own hearts. Let's look first and see what they tolerated. They tolerated, there in 20, that woman Jezebel. Look, but I have this against you, the Lord Jesus writes, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. This woman has become a plague on Thyatira. Jezebel was not likely the name of the particular woman who's being identified here. But, but Jesus calls her this so that we might understand really what kind of person she was. Most of you don't find the name Jezebel in your list of baby names when you're looking to name your newest daughter. It never came across our list in any of the four because of the Jezebel that we meet in 1 Kings chapter 21. King Ahab of the northern kingdom married a foreign princess with this name Jezebel. And, and she was the influence in his life that caused him to begin worshiping idols and committing acts of sexual immorality. Just one verse from 1 Kings 21, verse 25 says, in reference to, to the other kings that were wicked in this kingdom, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, comma, whom Jezebel his wife incited. Men, you can't blame your wives for your bad activity, but the Bible blames Jezebel for Ahab's immorality and for leading him into wickedness. And so Jesus calls upon this name to, to bring to mind this attitude, this, this character from the Old Testament who did just what this woman in Thyatira is doing. She came to Thyatira, and like the true Jezebel did with Ahab, she, she begins to spread her teachings like a cancer throughout this congregation. And we see some of her teaching hinted at in these verses. Look at verse 20. This woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, this is what she's teaching and telling them to do, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This, these two things are directly tied to the, the, the trade and pagan worship that's going on in this city. She's teaching them that it's, it's okay to lean into those worldly practices that are expected of you. Now, we'll connect it in a minute. Look at, look at verse 24, another picture, another, another hint at what she's teaching. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, and then he defines the teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. 
probably not meant to be sort of a generic catch-all term. Probably meant to identify specifically what she was teaching these people. That if you can get to know Satan, you can fight against him. You ever face that own temptation in your heart? Well, you know, maybe my sin's not that bad. And maybe if, if, if I do familiarize myself with wickedness, I can fight it better. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's likely that Jezebel was teaching her followers. Yes, yes, in order to thrive as Christians in the world, you must know the enemy so well, become so intimate with him, so that you can, you can know the difference between him and Christ. And so she would come in and, and likely say things like, no, 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 no. It is okay for you to go to those feasts and those festivals of these pagan gods. It is okay for you to eat the food sacrificed to them. It is okay for you in, to indulge the lust of your flesh in those particular seasons. Don't worry. You know why? Because if, if you get to know Satan, you'll be able to resist him. It's foolishness, isn't it? But so easily believed. This is how heresy and wickedness sneak into the church. We must not tolerate Jezebel. A few thoughts of application in a broad sense in our day and age. You know, where God has designed a special relationship between husband and and wife, the world has stripped it of all but the intimacy and, and calls it identity and says that, that these feelings that you have, that, that so much of the time are driven by your sin, that this is who you are. And that sneaks into the church. We've seen it. We've had to excise some of it from among our members. We've seen it. The teaching that, that almost as if we are beastly animals driven solely by our biological urges. It's, it's heresy. It teaches against the doctrine of man as God has created us. The church faces this today. And, and as we determine how we will respond to the rampant sexual immorality that the world demands that we accept, we must take into account what Christ says here and the threat and the warning that he brings in just a moment. Where God has called his people to live in quietness and contentedness and humility. The world has called us to get as much as we can and to attain as much money as we possibly can. Yes, sometimes the Lord blesses the church with money so that we might give to the furtherance of his kingdom. But so often the temptation is to acquire for the sake of acquiring so that we might be someone in this world. The church must constantly resist the, 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 the temptation to be driven by what looks good and feels good and seems good to the watching world. We must always only trust the word of God and lean upon him in all of these types of matters. We must not tolerate Jezebel. But not just in these broad categories, but I, I want you to try, and may the Holy Spirit help us, to bring it down into our hearts. Where and how does this toleration appear in your own life? What do you 
tolerate. And we're not talking about tolerance in the way of the world, that we need to let everything, you know, come into the church and be a part of what we believe. And No, no, no. I mean, what little sins do you, do you tolerate in your heart? What things that go against God are you still giving a place of life in your life? You know, there's, there's an ident- identification here, particularly of sexual sin. You used to say it just to young men. You need to be careful about what you look at on the Internet and what you allow your eyes to gaze at, but it's now needed to say to young women too, put it to death. Keep your eyes from worthless things. And if you're moving towards marriage, you need to be careful about what you allow yourself to do with that person whom you will marry. Be careful that you do not fall into sin that you do not somehow convince yourself it's okay because one day we'll be married. That's not what the Bible teaches. And ask plenty of us in here. We can tell you what great harm sexual sin will do in your future. But it's not just sexual sin, it's also idolatry. So, so the things related to self and money and, and status and looks and, and making something of myself... And elevating things above my God, these are the temptations of Jezebel. But, but it's not just those explicit issues that are mentioned here. Maybe you buy into the idea, and, and <laughs> gossip really does become the thing that you kind of tap on in a sermon, but most people go, yeah, gossip's a sin. But you realize that all of us need to repent of this. Where we somehow buy into the idea that everybody's business is my own business, I just got to keep it quiet while I talk about it. That's foolishness. What about the things that get into the way of your personal Christian practice? You know, we all can stand to spend more time in prayer every week and meditating upon the Word of God. What about attending the worship with the saints, praising your Lord for what He's done on the Lord's Day? Do we compromise vital time, not just in our everyday mornings, but on the Lord's Day? Do we compromise these times because we have to be somewhere else that's more important or something else that just needs my time and attention or something else I enjoy too much? Get up earlier, make the time, cancel your plans. The Lord is worthy of all of our pains and diligence and godliness, and we ought not compromise our commitment to Him for anything. Do not tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Immorality creeps in in ways that we're unaware. You go look at the Old Testament. And all the immorality that the Old Testament church dealt with. And do you know what the, what the Lord continued to come back and talk about? I won't talk about it anymore other than this one comment. That may not be true. The Lord continually came back and told his people that they, that they broke his Sabbaths. That all of the immorality that they were struggling with, not every single piece of it, but that it began when they stopped the basic fundamental worship of the Lord and they devolved into immorality and idolatry. It's the basic things. Don't, don't neglect to think about it. It doesn't just have to be idolatry you know, at a trade guild or sexual immorality at a festival. It, it starts in the smallest of ways and we must be so very careful to guard our lives Because there is a great danger in tolerating sin. That's what 22 and 23 get into. Look, it's like a big danger sign. Don't, don't go this unrepentant, immoral way. Why? 22. Behold, Jesus says, I will throw her. No longer will she be on a stranger's bed. 22. I will throw her under a sick bed. 
And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent. And I will strike her children dead, that is, her followers, those who have given to her ways. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus brings a threat for those who do not repent, and for the rest of us, it is a warning that death comes to those who fail to repent of their sin. We're going to address it in a moment, but verse 18 describes Jesus in in language of of judgment that he sees and that he, he enforces. Jesus cannot abide sin. And he speaks as a judge in 23 and 24. You see what he brings to those 23. I will strike her children dead. This is, this is death spoken of in the same way that it's spoken of in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. The Lord tells Adam and Eve of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Both in Genesis 2 and in Revelation 2, the phrase is that you shall die by way of death. You shall die dying. This death is not physical death only. As if the unrepentant soul can imagine that one day they will die, and it doesn't matter what they've done, that they will go on to glory. It is, it is not just physical death, but it is death, death, dying by dying. It is the spiritual death. It's separation from the goodness of God, where someone is subject only to his wrath and curse for their sin. It is death by dying. It's what was promised to all of those apart from Christ in Genesis chapter 2. Friends, listen to this word from Jesus. Listen to his word here. While they tolerated Jezebel, Jesus says he will not tolerate unrepentance. While they compromised with the world, Jesus makes it clear here that he has no compromise for the one who continues to knowingly live in sin. No matter how small the sin may be, we think, oh, it's just a little bit of a thing. No. All sin goes against God. And everyone who sins deserves the wrath of God, not just in this life, but in the one to come. So friends, I urge you, in face of this warning and this threat against unrepentance, Repent of your sin and turn back to Christ. Call it what it is. And turn to Jesus. We'll see him in a minute. He is the one in whom forgiveness is found. He is the one in whom life is guaranteed. He died in your place, as we say in our house, so that we don't have to. Repent and turn from sin back to God. Be warned, Christian. Be warned, unbeliever. Jesus will not abide it among his people. Lastly, you know, the question looms in our minds, okay, how? What do we do? How do we, how do we get out of this? How do we stand firm against such toleration, against such wickedness and evil? How can they, I ask it of ourselves too, how, how can we 
resist the temptation to tolerate the wickedness of sin and the worldliness around us. And there's three things he says here, if we were to sum them up. He first declares that it's not a burden. Look at 24. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Listen. The Christian life is not some unattainable thing. You know, we grow up and we see all these people in front of us. You know, they, they mount pulpits in churches full of people. And we see, you know, especially in our world of social media, we see all these influencers on the internet who seem to have all of this attractional power and they can just bring anybody they want to themselves and they, they look good and they seem good. The, the Christian life is not like this. Don't, don't bring that perspective from the world into your own mind about what it is to live for Christ. Jesus is saying here, all I'm asking of everyone is plain old discipleship. Just plain old Christian living. Just read your Bibles and pray. And then on the Lord's Day, come to church and worship. That's it. Our religion is remarkably simple. Jesus doesn't ask too much. Now, he asks a lot and you'll discover it. But it's not too much. It's not a burden, you see. I don't lay on you any other burden than what? Hold fast and conquer. That's 25 and 26. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And he sort of connects it together with this idea of conquering. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Holding fast and conquering, what's this look like? Well, well verse 25 says, hold fast what you have. And if we go back up, we see verse 19 is what they had. Faith, love, service, endurance, all of these things increasing. They, the latter exceed the first. And, and it really is just the ordinary means of grace, beloved. It's, it's what we've already referred to, that what Christ asks of us is just regular attention to the word and the sacraments and prayer. Regular commitment to the means of grace, the, the paths that, that Jesus points at and says, this is where I will bless you, is under the ministry of the word and under the ministry of the sacraments and under the ministry of prayer. This is where you will find life. And we are fools to walk anywhere else, aren't we? These paths, it's simple. It's not a burden. It's basic. We hold fast to what we have, and this is what Christ has given. But in the middle of it all, we, we need to remember that, um, you know, that, that the idea of conquering here is not what we may imagine when we think of conquering. You know, um, the human idea of conquering is to look at self and to say, you know, I'm strong and I can have anything I want. I can be who I want to be. That's not the idea of conquering that the Bible has in mind. The Bible says that God's overcomer, that God's conqueror, we look away from self. It's the very basics of faith that we cannot save ourselves. And so what? So we look to the one who can. That's what it is to conquer. That's what it is to hold fast. It, it's to, you know, uh, um, we are weak, but he is strong. John Calvin writes, as often as we feel our weakness, let us flee to him for refuge. 
when we have done any good, let us not be puffed up with any pride. But let us regard ourselves as so much more bound to God. He that is very weak must confess himself exceedingly indebted to God's mercy for supporting him. But he that excels above others and is a mirror of all holiness must confess that he is even more indebted to God. Why? Because he has nothing of his own but holds all things from God. That is what it is to hold fast, is to let go of self and to latch on to Christ by faith, to believe that he is who he says he is. And that's the major thrust of these ending verses of the letter, is, is that he wants us to trust him. He wants us to cling to him. You see this language of, of joining him with authority to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, and that we receive this, this morning star. It, it's, it's pronouncing upon God's children that we are victorious in Christ. That one day, when Christ has won all victory, we won't be somewhere off wandering around, but we'll be with Him in glory, holding authority above all things because we are His. The morning star is a direct reference to Christ Himself. You can flip over to, well, not now, sorry, excuse me. Later, read Revelation 22 and you'll see Jesus identifies Himself as the bright morning star. He's the one who has redeemed us and saved us. And brought us to himself. A feature of these seven letters. At the beginning of each, there's a description of Christ. In every case, in each letter, remembering who Jesus is, is the remedy for that church's trouble. And it's weighty, you know, but what we may wonder already... Why does Jesus introduce himself this way? Look at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Who, who is Jesus? Verse 18 says his feet are like burnished bronze. They symbolize the coming judgment. You know, something that we rarely consider as safe people who live in relative comfort, that the judgment day is coming. And we will have to give account for what we have done in this life. Who is Jesus? Verse 18 says he is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. Jesus is the one, he said it in here, who searches mind and heart. His vision is... These flames of fire are like the word of God that's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man. Is that not terrifying? That God has sent Christ to judge the world, and he has eyes of flames of fire that can see to the very bottom of your soul, to the very depths of your depravity, that he knows all your guilt and all your wickedness, that he knows you all the way to the very bottom and he uncovers everything. Who is Jesus? He is, as he says here, the Son of God. We've already heard from Colossians 1 how Paul speaks of him as the Son of God, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Romans 5 says that while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You see, he identifies it right there at the beginning. Before he articulates all of their sin and all of the threats against unrepentance, he identifies at the beginning, I am the Son of God. I am the one who has come and saved my people from their sin. And in me you have life. That's what he's communicating to them. Yes, indeed. Jesus is the one who will judge you for your sin. But he is also the Savior of his people. If you have believed, you are his. And the mercy of God is a beautiful declaration that he will never be rid of us, that he refuses to leave us, and in Christ it is true. To all who did receive him who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Father, come, send your Holy Spirit for the sake of Christ to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We are weak and frail. We need strength to believe, strength to be refreshed. Come and send your Spirit for that particular purpose, even today, that you may be adored by your people. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.